BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's up, shadowy sleuths? Welcome to Sinister Silhouettes, the podcast where we dive headfirst into the darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm Tasha Pierce, your guide through the twisted tapestry of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal phenomena. Together, we'll unravel these sinister silhouettes, shining a light on the darkness that can reside within the human soul. Please do me the honor of rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Sinister Silhouettes wherever you're listening. Today's story takes us to Atlanta, Georgia, and rarely do I do this, but I am going to issue a content warning. The story that I'm about to share is extremely graphic. It it details uh, a very tumultuous uh, labor and delivery process. And if this is going to in any way trigger you, I suggest that you step out right about now. Thank you for jo- for trying to join me this week, but I do not want to add to anyone's trauma. With that warning being issued, let's get into today's story. The hours leading up to childbirth bring a unique and intense emotional experience for expectant mothers. As the excitement of meeting their baby peaks, they're enveloped in a whirlwind of emotions. Nervousness and excitement mingle, creating a delicate balance between eagerness and apprehension. The weight of this life-changing moment rests heavily on their shoulders, accompanied by wonder at the incredible journey their bodies are undergoing. Amidst the physical discomfort and growing contractions, a deep well of determination and strength fuels their spirits. In these precious hours, Expected mothers navigate a complex tapestry of emotions, each thread woven with anticipation of a new beginning, the culmination of months of preparation, love, and hope. In a tragic case involving Jessica Ross and Travion Taylor Sr., these months of anticipation ended in heartbreak. After filing a lawsuit alleging their baby was decapitated during birth, an investigation is now underway into the death of their child, Travion Taylor Jr. The sequence of events began on July 9th when Jessica Ross's water broke at 10 a.m. She sought medical care at Prime Healthcare Service Incorporated, which does business as Southern Regional Medical Center in Riverdale. By 8.40 p.m., Ross was fully dilated and began pushing. However, complications arose as the baby faced 
shoulder dystocia during vaginal delivery attempts. Dr. Tracy St. Julian, MD, employed various methods to assist delivery, including traction on the baby's head. Now, when vaginal delivery became unfeasible, a C-section was performed at around 11.49 p.m. The baby's body and legs were delivered at 12.11 a.m. with the head delivered vaginally. Shockingly, the lawsuit claims that Dr. St. Julian did not inform Ross and her family about the decapitation when she spoke to them at approximately 5 a.m. on July 10th. Furthermore, the hospital allegedly discouraged Ross and Travion Taylor Sr. from seeking an autopsy, instead encouraging them to cremate the baby. The baby's body was positioned in a way to conceal the decapitation when the parents requested to see and hold their child. They were not granted their request to hold their child. Ultimately, the family learned about the decapitation from the funeral home. The lawsuit asserts that Dr. St. Julian's actions deviated from medical standards and accuses Premier Women's OBGYN LLC of liability for her negligence. Now, that is part of a network of doctors that Dr. St. Julian was associated with. Several nurses are also implicated for not following proper procedures when a shoulder dystocia was identified. Now, shoulder dystocia is a complication that can occur during childbirth. It happens in approximately one out of 100 vaginal births. So this situation arises when one of your baby's shoulders becomes trapped behind either the pubic bone or your sacrum, which is the bone at the back of your pelvis, just above your tailbone. Normally, during the second stage of labor, there's a pause after the baby's head is born before the rest of the body follows. However, in cases of shoulder dystocia, this pause is longer than usual, and there are additional signs that your doctor or midwife will look for to confirm the diagnosis. And when shoulder dystocia occurs, your baby requires immediate and specialized assistance for delivery. So many people will ask what leads to so shoulder dystocia. It's not possible to predict whether shoulder dystocia will occur, but certain factors can increase the likelihood. These factors include a previous experience of shoulder dystocia during labor, induced labor, other interventions during labor, expecting a large baby known as fetal macrosomia, being significantly overweight, having diabetes, and having slow progress in labor. And while your baby is stuck, their ability to breathe may be compromised and pressure on the umbilical cord can occur. It becomes crucial for your baby to be delivered promptly to ensure they receive enough oxygen. Now, if shoulder dystocia is, sus is suspected by your doctor or your midwife, they will first instruct you to stop pushing. They will immediately call for assistance as the situation might require specialized doctors and nurses to care for you and your baby. In some cases, changing your position can alleviate the issue. You might be asked to lie flat on your back with your knees pulled back as far as possible, which is known as the McRoberts position. Alternatively, getting on your hands and knees or on all fours can also help. Occasionally, your midwife or doctor might need to insert their fingers or hand into your vagina to release your baby's body. An episiotomy might be necessary before this step 
and your healthcare provider will explain the procedure and seek your consent if needed. In extremely rare cases, your midwife or doctor may need to carefully break your baby's collarbone to facilitate their passage. This, of course, is going to heal rapidly after birth and it uh, beats the alternative of what could happen if they left the baby in the distress for too long. Another option is an emergency C-section under general anesthesia. And once this anesthesia takes effect, your baby will be gently pushed back into your uterus. This is called the Zavanelli procedure and delivered through an incision in your abdomen. In the case of Ms. Ross, none of those options were explored quickly enough to save her baby's life. The lawsuit seeks compensation for the child's suffering and death, as well as the immense mental and physical trauma endured by Ross. Additionally, it aims to recover damages for the baby's life, including lost earnings and enjoyment of life. And this family is represented in this legal matter by attorneys Dr. Roderick Edmond, Keith Lindsay, and Corey Lynch. Now, black women in the United States face a significantly higher risk of pregnancy-related complications and mortality compared to white women. Ms. Ross is a black woman. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reveals a troubling reality. Black women are three to four times more likely to lose their lives due to pregnancy-related issues than their white counterparts. Additionally, black women are at an increased likelihood of encountering preterm births, low birth weights, and maternal mortality. The concerning statistics extend to the survival rates of black infants during childbirth. According to the CDC, black babies are twice as likely as white babies to pass away within their first year of life. This disparity is even more stark when considering black babies born to mothers with limited financial resources. The year 2020 saw a national infant mortality rate of 5.8 deaths per 1,000 live births. However, the rate soared to 11.1 deaths per 1,000 live births for black infants, while white infants experienced a rate of 4.9 deaths per 1,000 live births. The underlying causes of the gap in infant mortality rates between black and white babies can be largely attributed to racial disparities in healthcare. Factors such as premature births, low birth weights, and maternal chronic health conditions contribute to this disparity. Moreover, inadequate prenatal care is often a reality for black mothers and their infants. Consider the case of Ms. Ross, who by medical standards might be classified as overweight or obese. It raises questions about whether she was fully informed about the potential complications that a full-term pregnancy could pose for her and her unborn child. Were options like an early C-section or induced labor discussed with her? These are decisions that become more complicated in high-stress circumstances. Now, it appears that mothers from specific socioeconomic backgrounds are sometimes subjected to a take-what-you're-given approach within the healthcare system. This sentiment extends beyond individual cases and seems to be a systemic issue. Now, in this particular situation, the attending doctor is also a black woman with over two decades of experience. 
Now, while speculation is at play here, it's possible that she approached this delivery as she had with countless others, without considering the unique needs of the patient before her. Unfortunately, by the time these considerations were taken into account, it may have been too late. These, of course, are still all allegations until the parties have their day in court. And I'm sure you're wondering what makes this case a crime. Well, so far, we have only heard the family's side of the story via their lawsuit because HIPAA laws protect the patient's privacy in these matters, meaning the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff, the hospital staff cannot comment on this presently because those laws are protecting Ms. Ross's rights. But what makes this case a crime? Well, the medical examiner's office only got involved after being contacted by Willie A. Watkins Funeral Home in Riverdale. The medical examiner's office said they were notified of a deceased infant uh, that the funeral home had in their care that had been reported as decapitated during childbirth. Now, though the family had already obtained a private autopsy, they reported it to the medical examiner and this was the first that office had heard of it. Southern Regional Medical Care Center said in a statement that the hospital did report the infant's death to the medical examiner and is cooperating with all investigations. But the medical examiner said the hospital did not self-report the incident, but that the hospital is cooperating with the county's investigation so you take which one you believe southern regional says yeah we reported it and the medical examiner is saying not so much the hospital said in a statement that the baby died in utero before delivery and the doctor name in the lawsuit is not and never has been an employee of the hospital although it's important to note she had privileges at that hospital in the medicine subreddit obstetricians have been chiming in and uh, one of them says that this is a rare but known complication that occasionally occurs now using the limited information that is currently available they suspect that the baby's head was out but his shoulder was caught on his mother's pubic bone which uh, trapped him in the birth canal the baby is trapped simultaneously constricting his lungs and umbilical cord and preventing him from getting oxygen. Shoulder dystocia is apparently an OB's worst effing nightmare and they only have about five minutes to dislodge the child before he suffocates. This doctor, uh, Dr. St. Julian, likely went through multiple emergency routines to try to dislodge the baby's shoulder, which dramatically increased in brutality as the situation becomes more dire. If the baby can't be dislodged and suffocates to death, the doctor's focus must turn to saving the mother. The baby has to come out. So the doctor tried to push the baby's head back into his mother's uterus so that he could be removed via C-section as she was supposed to do. Unfortunately, the uterus will occasionally clamp down too tightly for this procedure to be possible, at which point the doctor is left with the option to use a scalpel to remove the already dead baby in pieces. Uh, various medical professionals in the sub seem to think that the chances that decapitation happened to a full-term, only recently deceased fetus accidentally are pretty slim. 
the situation must have been very desperate for this to have occurred at all and the medical team is probably pretty wrecked by this experience. Now another medical professional chimed in via Reddit saying, and I'm just going to read her post that she put on Reddit uh, in its entirety. I am a retired labor and labor and delivery RN. Obviously, all I know about this case is what we're being told from the family side because the doctors, nurses, hospital are not allowed to talk about it. I can tell you how things have always gone for me and my co-workers. This woman was completely dilated at 8.40 p.m. She is morbidly obese, which makes external fetal monitoring more difficult. So I'm going to stop there. Even though this mother may have had a monitor across her to monitor the baby's uh, uh, progress, it might not have been working due to the weight of the mother. Let's see, especially, and and this is especially during pushing. I'm going to go back to reading the post now. As an RN, I would have probably asked for internal monitoring, and this patient may have had it. We don't know. We aren't told. Anyway, she's also a first-time mother, and she's young. First-time mothers often take longer to deliver, and with an epidural, sometimes it takes them a while to figure out how to push. She goes on to say, I personally like to allow my parents to, or allow my patients to labor down, meaning even though they are fully dilated, I'm going to let the uterus do as much of the work as possible in bringing the baby down, as long as the fetal heart tones look good and mom is comfortable. Again, she's reiterating she does not know the situation here, but they started pushing at 8.40 p.m. It's not unheard of for women to have to push for two plus hours. And she goes on to say, I myself pushed for three hours. As long as everything looks good, mom is tolerating it, and the heart tones look good. I'm going to pause. We're going to interject here with Tasha. I thought that was incredible. I guess because I've only had one child and it was an incredibly easy experience for me. Thank you, Quinn. But I could not imagine pushing, trying to push, being being in active labor, trying to push their baby out for two to three hours. But here we have a labor and delivery nurse who says it's not uncommon. So blow my mind because I thought it was I thought that's where we had a, a negligent act in this case but it seems that um, that is not as uncommon as I thought okay going back to the post another thing to note here especially at night shift nurses usually have the patient push without the doctor there until it's only like one to three pushes away from delivery the doctor isn't sitting in there with all that going on usually unless something is not going well pause Tasha is interjecting This is speculation on my part. If that doctor wasn't there and only made it to this delivery, once shit started to hit the fan, this starts to become an entirely different story. But because we don't know that, we do not have that information, I'm going to continue to read this post and try to uh, offer an alternative when it's possible but we do need to like kind of stick to the facts as it was presented in the lawsuit until we get more information. Anywho, uh, the next part of the story we get is that there was a dystocia, but we have no idea 
when that occurred, what steps were taken to correct to correct the dystocia, how long it took to go through those maneuvers, and what the status of the baby was during the time between 8.40 and 11.50 when the emergency C-section was called. Shoulder dystocias cannot be predicted. Let me repeat that. This is not something that would have turned up on an ultrasound or uh, during a, a, a pelvic exam or any of those things. Shoulder dystocias cannot be predicted. It is every OB's and nurse's worst nightmare. And when this happens, and I'm back to reading the post, when this happens and we realize what is going on, we cannot panic externally, but internally, we are fucking panicking. There is a lot that has to be done extremely quickly by everyone on the team. We try to explain without terrifying the family and as quickly as possible. Again, this is this user's experience in her career as a labor and delivery nurse. This is not saying this is what occurred with Ms. Ross and her situation. Trying to correct a dystocia, going back to the post, and going through the maneuvers usually takes about five to seven minutes before either the baby is delivered or off to C-section. It only takes five to seven minutes for the baby to die, sometimes less. Hell, the baby could have already been dead before the dystocia. If the external fetal monitoring was picking up maternal sounds instead of the infant, which is likely in a case with a morbidly obese mother. If the external fetal monitoring system was picking up maternal sounds instead of the infant, the baby could have already been dead. There is no doubt in this user's mind, however, that the baby in this case was dead before they went to the operating room. The C-section was called at 11.50, according to articles. A mom should have already had an epidural. Preparing for an emergency C-section takes literally seconds because consents were already signed and the whole team is well-versed in this routine. Usually, An emergency C-section will take about one to three minutes from the time it is called to the time this baby is out. Let me stop here and just kudos to medical professionals. Kudos to those people who choose to assist mothers in the delivery, in the safe, hopefully safe delivery of their children because you guys work magic. You are so appreciated when you are doing, when you guys are on, you guys are on because we got a, a, a surgery, a whole surgery that takes one to three minutes from the time it is called to the time the baby is out. It's that fact. Back to the post. This baby's body and legs were, del- were delivered via the abdomen while the head was delivered vaginally at 1210. This poster says that is a long ass time. Which, for me, I just told you how uh, impressed I am that this whole thing can happen between one and three minutes. And we're talking from 11.50 to 12.10. I thought that was reasonable. But this nurse is letting us know, no, 20 minutes is a long-ass time. She she goes on, say, during all these times that things have started going badly, we basically tell the family things are progressing to an emergency. This is what we must do baby is stuck and we have to get the baby out now if the baby perishes during this process we don't necessarily say oh your baby is dead because if we can get baby out we might be able to revive but only if it happens very quickly 
By the time they got mom to C-section, this poster believes that the baby had been deceased for a while. The OB and team knew it. She can't say whether or not they told the family that the baby was already gone, but given how long it took to get the baby out, this nurse feels the OB made the decision to sever the head from the body as the only way to deliver it and save the mother's life. Now, this poster continues. I've never been in that position of a decapitation and I wasn't in the room and I don't know the full story, but I can say that I'm not sure anyone would know exactly how to tell the family, especially not in the immediate aftermath. I'm sure they were told the baby did not make it and that the baby had traumatic injuries, but I'm also sure the parents wanted to see and hold their baby. Anytime we have a demise of any kind, we do our best to wrap babies in a way to minimize the appearance of any trauma or deformities and to minimize the trauma to the family. So wrapping this baby this way so that the parents and family could hold their baby without being further traumatized makes sense to me. Except, this is Tasha interjecting, except this family wasn't able to hold the baby. Moving forward. However, at some point, once the family has said, had their time with the baby and said goodbye, the doctor should have sat with the family and explained everything that happened and answered any questions the family had. This is where things become criminal. The way that was handled, if it was indeed handled the way the media reports, is criminal and inexcusable, and that ends that post from Reddit. Now, I tend to agree because I don't know how we would explain to a family right away, I had to cut your baby's head off in order to extract him from the birth canal, and I did this to save your life. I don't know how I could say that in a diplomatic way because any way that you say it is going to be horrible. And as a, an MD, she may have never been in this position before, um, even though uh, dystocias are common. This particular situation where the baby becomes trapped and all of your uh, things that you are doing in order to uh, help free this baby so that you can deliver him or her safely, all of those measures are not working. And then you end up having to cut a baby's head off. As an MD, I can imagine it being uh, a traumatizing situation for you, but put yourself in the position of the children. It is your job. You are the leader in that operating room. And it is it falls on your shoulders to deliver this bad news to the parents. And apparently that's not what happened. So let's talk more about this doctor in question. Allow me to introduce you to Dr. Tracy St. Julian, a, a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist practicing in the Atlanta area since January 2005. Dr. St. Julian is also certified in robotic surgery, specializing in treating uterine fibroids and abnormal uterine bleeding. She obtained her BS in biology with a minor in chemistry from Prairie View A&M University worked as a lab tech at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, right here where I am, after she graduated from Prairie View. Dr. St. Julian's medical journey began in 1992 at the University of Te Texas Medical Branch, where she attended her first year of medical school and was also commissioned into the U.S. Army. 
She earned her doctorate of medicine in 1996 and completed a four-year residency in OBGYN at the National Capital Uniformed Service, including Walter Reed Army Medical Center. She has some impressive credentials here. And following her residency, Dr. St. Julian was assigned to Womack Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg in 2000. Now she's married, she has two daughters, and per her bio, Dr. St. Julian's medical interests lie in young women's health. She takes pride in providing personalized care. In addition to her medical career, Dr. St. Julian has also served in the U.S. Army, highlighting her commitment to both her medical profession and her country. In summary, Dr. Tracy St. Julian is an OBGYN with years of experience and a focus on certain medical issues. These current allegations of negligence cast a shadow over her career and emphasizes the importance of scrutinizing her medical practices. Now, that's not to say that she has done anything uh, super negligence in the past. And that's not to say, again, that she has done what she's been accused of doing in this kind of barbaric manner. We don't know because we only have one side of the story is going to uh, stumble. She's going to stumble in her profession because of these allegations. If this whole experience doesn't make her uh, rethink her life decisions. And that's unfortunate um, because it also could be said that these parents may rethink having children in the future because of this horrible experience that they had with their firstborn child. And they're 20 years old, they're kids, you know, and it's just, this is a lot. This is a lot. So going back over why there could be a disparity uh, of this nature in healthcare in the United States of America uh, between black women and everybody else, there could potentially be a racial bias in healthcare. Black mothers are less likely to receive adequate prenatal care and are more likely to be treated with disrespect by their health care providers. I will give you an example. I began going to a new doctor earlier this year. And the older I get, I have a few things, a few concerns uh, that I wanted addressed. And it is always, always recommended. Hey, when you go into the doctor, Right before you go, write out all of the things, all of the questions that you might have. Write them down. Because when you get there, especially if you suffer from medical anxiety like I do, when you get there, you may forget things. So you want to have things written down so that you can tell the doctor what's going on and come together on a plan of care, where which direction we are going to go from here. When I came into that doctor's office with my little notebook, with the things that I uh, had to ask him. He said to me, you guys come in here, you come to the doctor once and think we're supposed to be able to fix all your problems in one day, which was not something that I asked. It was not something that I expected. What I expected was a plan of care. I am not, cannot be the only person who came to a doctor's appointment prepared. This doctor's attitude sent me into uh, an anxiety attack. 
where I literally bought up. I've already have medical anxiety. I'm 50 years old. I'm an experienced uh, patient, I guess you can say. And this is how I was treated. Now imagine a 20 year old going to prenatal appointments and not saying that the doctors would be as uh, blunt as this doctor was with me, but those little microaggressions that you might not pick up on as a younger person, they could be present. These doctors could already be making assumptions about you and your unborn child, especially if you are using Medicaid or Medicare or whatever they call it, whichever, I think it's Medicaid. If you're using Medicaid, especially if you're on a state program of health, they, they may have a, a predisposed biases against families like that. So the socio socioeconomic factors, black mothers are more likely to live in poverty and have less access to quality health care. Kind of take what you can get situation like we talked about earlier. There's also structural racism. Um, the legacy of slavery and racism in the United States has created a system of oppression that disadvantages black people in all areas of life, including health care. And you don't have to subscribe to that. You don't have to believe that it's true. But all it takes is one person in a medical practice to have those kind of deep-seated beliefs, and it just spoils the entire practice. It just it spoils the entire practice. So what can be done? What can be done? Uh, there are a number of things that can be done to improve the health outcomes of Black mothers and their babies, including starting with racial equity training for healthcare providers. Uh, they need to be trained to address racial bias in their practice. They may not even be aware of the bias themselves. That type of training needs to be ongoing. There also needs to be an increased access to quality healthcare for Black mothers and their children. Um, we need we need access to quality prenatal care and other health care services. We also need to address socioeconomic factors. There need to be more economic opportunities and access to safe housing for not just black mothers, but for all of us. But especially in this case, because we're talking about black mothers. Yeah, them. And, and dismantling structural racism, which that's an easy uh, task, right? We've, we've, we've only been working on that for the past 50 years. <laughs> we need to address the root causes of racial inequality in the United States, including the legacy of slavery and racism. So instead of trying to erase history, we need to teach history in a way so that it cannot and will not be repeated. But if we erase it, if we pretend like this stuff never happened, we are basically paving the road for it to happen again. And none of us want that. So those are things, I guess, that could be done to, to address these disparities in healthcare. Um, I am going to continue to keep my eye on this situation. I've got a lot of updates to give, don't I? They're, they're, I'm going to keep my eye on this situation, however. Hopefully we will get to see more of the story if and when this goes to a trial because I want to hear the doctor's side of the story. I'd like to hear what they have to say for themselves in defense of their actions with this family. That's all I got for you today. 
It's a terrible story. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. I'd like to hear what you have to say and what you think about this. You can send me feedback at SinisterSilhouettesPodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at Patreon.com slash Tasha Pierce, or you can just leave a rating and review. I really look forward to seeing those from you all. With all of that, I've got nothing else on this horrible, horrible story of Jessica Ross and uh, Travion Taylor and the loss of their child. Uh, My best wishes go out to the family and hopefully you gain some peace through this process. Hopefully this is not just a cash grab on behalf of some attorneys or whatever that you get some peace from this process. That's that for that. I will see you all next week with another twisted tale. Until then, shadowy sleuths, stay safe out there. Peace.